So this is from a very good book. It's actually a kind of work in progress from a Malaysian monk. What does he call it? He calls it... Uh, what does he call it? He calls it Jhana and Samadhi. What you, what you might not know about Jhana and Samadhi. It's not a published work, but it's available online, and I'll, I'll post it. Modern monk. Anyway, so I'll just go through some of these words, and I don't know how you've learned them. So as I was saying earlier today, the, the, the Theravada Buddhism, its scriptural language is Pali, and its history is such that a commentarial tradition arose uh, in Sri Lanka and Burma, and the Sri Lankan commentarial tradition was greatly affected by a text called uh, the Visuddhimagga by <coughs> Buddha Gosatera. And what was that, like 4th century AD? Fifth, was it? So that's a thousand years after the, the Buddha's teaching. Long time. So things, words evolve. And, and in that, um, the idea of meditation uh, had transformed. Probably is, this might have been influenced by what ascetics were doing in the Hindu traditions. And the idea that meditation necessary for enlightenment was this idea of absorption and this word jhana and western translators sometime in the 20th century translated the word samadhi as concentration so that comes to the noble eightfold path which comes from the uh, four noble truths so there is suffering First noble truth, the noble truth of suffering, and that has to be made conscious. You have to bring it up into consciousness that suffering has a cause, and that cause has to be abandoned, and that there is an end to suffering, and that suffering has the end has to be realized, and that there is a path, which is right understanding, right thought or right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So right concentration comes in there and that's called samasamadhi. So that's a background. If you're not familiar with uh, the intellectual background of Buddhism, that would be a very important set of principles to learn uh, because that's the prism or the lens through which much of Buddhist contemplation takes place. So if you're not familiar with that, it's good to actually uh, go through that and memorize it the English, and, and let it be part of your food for thought. Uh, if you don't understand that, uh, then you can, you can be taking bits of Buddhism, but you won't really get, I think, the core of the teaching, the core of the path. Um, so then, samasamadhi is right concentration uh, in, the, in, the, in this formulation, which comes from or the commentary. And so what I'm, what this book is presenting is how it's actually uh, described in the texts. So when we say the texts, we mean the oldest texts that we have, which we think the Buddha taught. Right? And that's from the Pali Canon. That's the best we have. Um, 
Okay, so when we say texts or the Pali, that's what we're talking about. And then commentary, we're talking about these later editions. So anyway, some of these words, which some of you are... are so samatha, he defines as settling. So as you know, some of you are in this tradition, you know, you know this sort of dichotomy where it says that I don't do samatha, I do vipassana. You know that, and and most uh, lay teachers are they say we do vipassana, and so where that's coming from again I said this earlier, but where that's coming from is this idea that samatha implies absorption, and that absorption you cannot realize the truth. It might be a good way of exercising the mind, but you don't realize the truth because to realize the truth you have to investigate the way things are. So people say, I don't do samatha, I do vipassana. But actually that's because they're using this uh, samadhi word as absorption. But if you take it back to the original text, you don't really separate those terms. And that only makes sense to me. Is you have to calm the mind before you're going to have any, any kind of acuity of attention before you kind of see any subtlety of the mind and understand the mind. And if you do that, if you understand aspects of the mind, you're going to be more calm. So to me, it's always seemed they must work together. How could they work apart? And this is the way the Ajahn Chah taught me, a Thai force tradition, and all my teachers. So this feels very comfortable to me. So Samatha, he says, is settling uh, rather than concentration. And jeto, samatha, which is the mind, mental settling. And then samadhi, he says, is composure or collectedness. Now, the thing about language, is language isn't just um, intellectual accuracy. Language has feeling, doesn't it? You know, when I hear the word concentration, it's different than composure. It affects me differently, and I apply my, my efforts from a feeling of language, too. So... You, you kind of consider for yourself, how does it feel? How does like concentration feel? And in your, your universe of words, and how does collectedness feel? And the thing is, it's, it's up for grabs, really. You know, the whole thing is just that you can be happy, <laughs> rather than a word being right or wrong. Uh, but words, words uh, drive us, don't they, somehow? Words, words give us intentions. So samadhi translates as composure or collectedness. And then there's a bunch of relation words. Um, Now the word jhana simply means meditation. And in the... In in, in Sanskrit it's dhyana. And then in, in Chinese it became chan. And then in Japan it became zen. And in Chan and Zen, they don't say absorption teaching, they say meditation pra- meditation tradition. That's what Chan and Zen are about, Dhyana, Jhana. So they, they got it right. And, and um, the Agamas talk of that way too, the Chinese texts. Okay. So when you talk about meditation, Jhana, then it's, it's like the, the, the problem with the kind of absorption uh, mentality is that they say jhana are states of mind, whereas the old text is saying it's a activity of mind. Now, for me, that's very different. If you tell me jhana is a state of mind, then I think I have to get it. 
a thing that I'm going to somehow produce through my meditation. But if you tell me jhana is an activity of meditation, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And that that activity has levels of composure, yeah. And you can, we can all see that, you know, if, 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 you, if you consistently work on understanding your mind, your composure will become more and more still. I mean, that's not, that's sort of more doable, isn't it? And so in terms of like, uh, you, do you know what noble silence means? It means when the mind doesn't think. <laughs> so we might be practicing noble silence, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> And noble science is actually second jhana. So, but it's not a state. You can see that you, you know, you come to that quite often in meditation. Your mind's just very quiet. That's not out of your reach. Whereas if you if you make this kind of exalted thing, you have to. Go, oh, I don't know. Or if you show off, well, I've got second jhana. <laughs> and people do that. They come to me. Oh, I got second. Oh, give me a break. <laughs> they actually do that. But this seems much more human. So when you, when you talk about jhana, you also talk about the jhana factors. Um, and they are ekagata, piti, sukha, uh, vitaka, vijara. Okay, five, five. So, so um, let's see if he's got that there. Has he got vitaka? Yeah. So vitaka and vijara are basically just thinking and considering. And that, you do meditate like that, don't you? think, God, I'm falling asleep. What can I do with this? God, whoa. <laughs> and you think about it. And you consider, oh, I need some more coffee. Or something. Or you're, you're, you're really getting tight. Why am I getting so tight? You think and consider. We talk of Ijara, right? But at some point, at some point, you get it. And your thinking begins to be less necessary. Doesn't it? And as you think, isn't that, I mean, there's still the obsessive thinking that we're all working with, but that kind of contemplative, meditative thinking becomes less necessary. And so you don't engage it. And so the mind begins to drop vitaka vijara, which is the second jhana. And then, no, no, that's a process to me, rather than this um, incredible experience. It makes sense to me. Uh, so then, um, piti and sukha. Piti gets translated in the other, in the, in the commentary tradition as, quite often as bliss or ecstasy. I mean, like I was telling him, that last time I did that was with acid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's my references for that kind of language. It's like so far gone. And, but he just says it's just joy. Now, now when you, you know, when you, when you, when I go outside today, I thought, life is never going to get better. I really thought that. This is about as perfect as human existence can get. Didn't you? Yeah. Right? And that, that's joy. But I wasn't, like, tripping. <laughs> yeah. So it seems to me that that sense of, of ease and, and joy comes from from good factors, good people, good friends, and great breakfast, and so on. Uh, but also comes from the mind just being at ease. And that's doable. Uh, and, then, and then sukha is just... The, and I think there's a, like a bodily component and a mental component, isn't it? When, 
like happiness in the body as you're relaxed. So, so the end of the out-breath, you feel relaxed. You feel at ease. But you're not, you're not wandering off. You're not that relaxed. Your body is at ease and your mind is happy. That's doable, isn't it? And you can see how when your mind begins to calm, you can get rather, wow, this is great. You can get kind of excited by that joy. But then that settles down and you have equanimity. And that to me is a very, a very natural process. So piti sukha are, are these, what we call jhana factors. And if you see it as a, meditation, or as a meditation process rather than as states of mind, then I don't think you feel so inadequate. Otherwise, well, for, I've felt inadequate for years. <laughs> you read this stuff, and then, my gosh, uh, you know, it seemed like so, so, so far-reaching. And yet, when I talked to my teachers, they never talked about Ajahn Chah never talked about that. Never, ever did he. And if people came to him, he said, oh, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't impressed by it, huh? Especially, especially people who could do absorption. Because he said, don't do that. You're just, you're just disassociating or whatever. You're just going into a state of really non... He said that was dangerous. He actually you know, kind of encouraged us not to do that. So then the final one, the fifth one, Ekagata, which I, I, I said earlier, was this miss... And this was a lot of the one-pointed focusness you have, you know, of, like Anapanasati can be taught that you have to focus at the end of your nose. And you focus so strongly that you forget about all other sense experience and then there's a nimitta that comes up. This doesn't, you won't find this in the Anapanasutta, Anapanasati Sutta. You won't find it in the texts. That's a modern thing, modern, yeah, 500 A.D. <laughs> <laughs> We're an old outfit um, that came in came in later, uh, so that so that the word ekagata had to be sort of used in a way that fit in with this kind of idea of one point of concentration. So the debate is around that word, and that aga is the word that is really that ekagata, the aga part means in most from this text, most contexts it means one place. So not being scattered. Now that's different to me than focusing on something really, really narrowly, one point. And, and that to me works much better. It's a, pragmatically, it just works much better. So this, this author translated as a stillness. So then you have stillness, composure, collectedness. These are all doable. And, and that language, I don't know about you, that language really helps me. The other doesn't really help me. I don't find it really... Uh, helpful in that way. So I, I, this, um, I, I invite you to read this. I think if you, you know, if you've if you've looked at the texts a lot, it's good to get this other perspective. And then if you read the text, then try to take out the word so, uh, concentration. As I was saying uh, uh, this 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 afternoon or whenever I spoke, um, the Thai said it room. Uh, which is like a collected mind, or sangop, which is peaceful. They don't use that idea of concentration. And yet, translators, when they see a tayajan, they'll translate it as right concentration. So, so you get this, this language of concentration coming into it. But you figure out what, what language works best for you. Uh, 
but at least you know you got permission to wander around a bit, right? <laughs> you can explore language in that way. So we'll put that on the OBS website, maybe. Yeah? Hope that's helpful, not too confusing. Now, <laughs> now, how much time is it? You got, you got a few hours? You suggested, uh, we noticed the mood of the mind. Is mood the same as emotion? Yeah. Are emotions a result of thought? Uh, for me, emotions precede thought, but then thought can stimulate emotion. So I have a memory of some hurtful feeling. The memory comes up, and it's got a narrative to it. And then I think the narrative, and I have more of that. Or the mood comes up of being hurt, and I, oh, a mood feels this way. And I see the, the self-thinking trying to come up, and I abandon that. The mood endures for a while, and there's cessation. And that's very important because then I no longer get reborn in the mood. I no longer create a sense of me in time because the realization of the transcendent is timeless. And the thing about past and future, it keeps kind of reifying a sense of self. I was in the past and I will be in the future. Chrono you know, con uh, like conventionally that's true, but we are now on a search for, for something the Buddha said was unconditioned, not a matter of time. And as long as I identify with memories as me and mine and believe in those narratives, not that they're wrong, but I believe in them as that's my real identity, then that will be my limit. But if I see those narratives as objects that come and go dependent on the moods, then I'm beginning to incline away from personal history to that which is beyond personal history. So it's not denying personal history. It's just saying you are more than that. Your experience Engage your, person, your personal stories are different than mine, so the, the, the con mind participates in that, but there's something bigger than that. That's the idea. Can you please talk about incorporating patience and kindness to oneself in the practice? Well, if you have an insight that patience and kindness would be kind of neat qualities to develop, then um, you start making those suggestions. You just, just, you just kind of start to say, I like to, I'm going to explore what the feeling of patience is like. And then just take a, you start to just, it's more like an exploration rather than a, than a demand, right? So you kind of get a feeling, yeah, I really shouldn't scream at everyone during a traffic jam. It's not, not a good idea. And you start to just explore what impatience is. Because that's, that's why you're, you're doing this. And you start to, to see that patience is making conscious impatience. That's what it is, isn't it? You don't develop patience when, it, what, like, when you think the day's perfect. When I was walking with Siri Mato and it was beautiful, I'm developing patience, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but you develop patience when you feel impatient. So then you, you, you make the statement, oh, impatience feels this way. And that's patience. <coughs> and and, and that's, the, that's the contemplative attitude of training the mind and it's very inquiring, actually. It's not like I should be. It's never. It's never this tyranny of I should be patient. So you just start doing it, you know, as an exercise, and then kindness too. You you kind of try to see in what area of your life um, unkindness manifests. So you quite often it's not to others; it's to ourselves. Usually we you know we 
we're all right with mo yeah well sometimes we dump on them sure <laughs> but quite often it's to ourselves so, okay then there's some self-disparaging attitude going on you feel oh, this is what self-hatred feels like you're a creeper domo you say it you know you're a basket case and then it ends you're the most hopeless bhikkhu that ever walked this planet. <laughs> and then it's not there anymore. Huh? Whereas if you do the other, you know, you find you're, you're, you're in a self-disparaging narrative. Oh, I'm so hopeless. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done this. And then, oh, I shouldn't think like that. I shouldn't. <laughs> you're still in self-thinking. So you want to get out of self-thinking by making conscious what self-thinking is as, a, as an object. So... And then, and then there's the self-disparaging voice, and you're hopeless. Like when my mom died, I had a, I tell this most retreats, I'd taken care of her for nine years, so I made a lot of effort. And I made a medical mistake in the last four days of her life, and I was very much taking care of her myself. And then when I realized it in the, in the, third, in the second to last day, day before she died, I had this horrible feeling, oh no, you've caused her pain. She's got enough pain. It's this horrible revelation. I just I just bound her legs too tight with stockings and so on. And it was the most dreadful feeling. The most dread you've hurt your mom. Now that's something I just I could not negotiate. That was the feeling. Right? And then and then that memory kept trying to plague me. And even though I had taken care of her as best I could, this self-disparaging voice tried to come at me. And what was interesting, most people, you know, if I talked to them, most people said, oh, Bhante, but you were so wonderful. That was not helpful. Because <laughs> it wasn't addressing what was going on. I know I was helpful, but I did this. But one of the monks said to me, oh, that must have been really difficult. And that's the one that helped. Because he let me make that conscious Oh, this is what this horrible feeling is like. But I refuse to go to the thoughts. I mean, I have enough training not to go there, but the mind just wanted to go down that rabbit hole. I said, no. And I said, no, I get it. I, you know, I, I kind of said, well, Mom, this is the doctor you got. <laughs> she was dead already. but um, And that was very important for me to be just really firm. This is just memory. This is just memory. This is just memory. Until that... And it was very intense, for, and then that began to just go its own way, not a problem. But it was interesting how all those comments of complimenting were not helpful. They're, they were sympathetic, but they were not empathetic. Right? They were trying to make me feel better rather than make me conscious. Not that I blamed anyone, but that's, yeah, that's just how humans, humans are. So, so that could be an issue. You know, kindness could be an issue around, you know, someone who just gets up your nose. Happens. <laughs> and that's very difficult. Someone who just viscerally you don't get on with. And, and maybe you live with them. Maybe they're at work. And then you have to be very, very, very uh, careful to allow the dislike to be there practice right speech, and then see if you can bring the mind to some sense of, may they be free from suffering. 
can you can you just nudge the mind towards that? And these are the practices of metta, of kindness, where you deliberately bring into consciousness people that you that you love. Um, so I bring up, I quite often go through the whole monastery, I name each person, I say, may you be free from suffering, another one, may you be free from suffering, and that's sincere and it's easy, and that of course encourages the mind to go in that direction. So when there's the person who I one might feel negative towards you've you've put a momentum in the mind to be able to go in that direction right? now if you just try to do that as a substitution then you're usually repressing so you feel you know you feel the 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 negativity and say may you be well may you be well but that's not kindness that's panic <laughs> So you, the first thing you have to make it conscious. Oh, this is the feeling that oh, this one's this guy's obnoxious. Oh, that's so that, and then you make it objective, and then from that you say, yeah, and may they be free from suffering. If you can't do it, don't go there. You say, oh, this is the feeling of really distrusting someone. It feels this way. You make it conscious, and that's the first noble truth. You make conscious the way things are. You make conscious suffering. So that's the only place you can work from. And then from there, you usually figure it out. Usually figure out what you have to do. And if you can't, like if someone's really, really difficult, then you have the precepts: don't punch them, don't don't stab them, don't rip them down behind their back, uh, don't publish Facebook posts about them, that you, or whatever it is. Don't exacerbate the problem. Don't make it worse than it is already. But don't get caught, I, I would suggest, don't get caught in the feeling that you should like everyone. It's impossible. And that's a fallacy, isn't it? That somehow you, you're going... Because metta or kindness is not liking everyone. It's, not, it's simply not plotting their downfall. <laughs> it's non-aversion. And that you can do. And then some you feel you know, deeply loving... Uh, deep consideration, and the more you do it, the, the, the negativity does fall away, the tendency to, to do that falls away, because you're not reinforcing it. But if you just come at it from your own self-disparaging, it won't work, because that's, think about it, the, the hatred of your own hatred is more hatred. It can't possibly work. Uh, this one, let me see, there were some shorties here. Could you say a little about compassion as a method rather than a goal. Maybe I'll, I'll speak to that more thoroughly tomorrow, okay? Can you talk a little about stillness? How is it incremental and enduring? Well, um, the more you reflect on the movement of the mind and the stream of consciousness with its emotions and memories and thoughts and, and all the complexity of it as an object, rather than being the subject, that is always inclining towards stillness. So even though my emotional content right now might be negative, the fact that I can see it as an object rather than running with the thoughts, I'm inclining towards stillness. You might not notice it. You know, the content might be so um, negative or whatever, it might be so... Um, uh, loud, that you, you seems like you're not getting anywhere. But the, as long as you're making it objective and you're knowing it as an object, and you're not being the subject, you're inclining towards stillness. 
Trust that. And that's why the first noble truth is like you make it conscious. As Ajahn Sumedha said, you, you stand under it. Suffering has to be understood. You make it conscious. And you don't want to do that. Desire doesn't want to do that. You make it conscious. You say, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. This is affirmative. It's like this. It's not asking anything else. And that's the inclination to stillness. That's where, that's where the faith is in Buddhism, I would say. Not in belief, but a faith, uh, for me. And, and it does work. Um, and Ajahn Sumedho was interesting, his last visit. That's what he was doing. It's just, it works here, Dhammo. <laughs> you just do it. Yeah, it does work. And that's lovely, isn't it? It's kind of reassuring when someone says that. So, and, and then if you, can, if you can have an environment of stillness, that helps. So you have periods where you don't um, do media. You do media fasts. Right? You do like iPhone and all the rest of it. You really, you really kind of just don't stimulate the mind for periods of time. And that's what we're doing here. So that's called sense restraint. Indriya Sangvara, which is a very important part of monastic life, uh, sense restraint. Not sense, not saying that you have to, you know, live in a cave or something like that. It's just saying that sense stimulation is stimulation. And, and it, it just busies the mind. So if you can create times where you don't, you're not stimulated, it's a bit difficult because you're bored. So as soon as you're bored, Where's the, how many emails have I got, right? This, this finger is being developed. Or this finger. Or that finger. You know, this is humanity's development of finger. So, media fasting, how do you do that? Lifestyle, uh, it helps stillness. Nature, I mean, you look at the, the river, right? Sometimes you can't. You live in Toronto, you can't do that. But... How can you bring stillness in, in architecture, like in your room? A space, a corner, a flower, a Buddha rupa, that when you go to it, oh yeah, yeah, that's stillness. All of that. Beauty, beauty helps. It's something that, that like beauty, if it's done, uh, that brings you to uh, stillness rather than excitement. Say some people would find some a beautiful, uh, like a movie, very beautiful, but I would say beauty that is a, a, a reflection of stillness would be very helpful. So, ikibana, flower, or uh, a Buddha image, or a corner of your home where, where you always sit. A lot of people have that, don't they? Rather than kind of sitting in the kitchen, or, you know, can you actually create a corner in your room where you have a shrine, and you, you have a flower, and you respect it, you maybe go in there and bow, that's very conducive. So you, you're like a shrine room here, right? It's different than a dining hall. It has a different feel to it. So architecture, art, these things can, you know, can be used for that. If, so you start to value stillness too. And then I would say kalyanamitta, uh, friends, are very important. So if you have friends that are very toxic, that's not going to make you still. They're not, probably not good friends. So, like, if you're engaging with people who just stir your mind up, how can you develop kalyanamitta? Sometimes you can't. You're just in, in relationships where it is kind of difficult. But the more you can come to friendships which encourage stillness, so, like, people who backbite and gossip and complain, they're not very good for your mind. That's where a lot of people, when they first come to Buddhism, lose a lot of friends. 
<laughs> your friendships start to say because they have different values. So friendships are, are you know, very, very important. How does momentary high concentration, katika samadhi of Mahasaya and his noting practice fit with Thai force practice? I'm not sure, really. I don't. I don't have a background in that. Right. Um, take take a look at that book and see what he says. I think he mentions the different kinds of samadhi, but I don't have a background in that, so I wouldn't feel. I think. We'll find something in there. Do you teach beginning meditators to constantly focus on the breath? No. I teach the same thing. I know. Oh, okay. Okay. Did you find the Buddha? <laughs> you got four more days. <laughs> yeah, I teach the same thing. I, I like. That's the only thing I know how to teach, right? So. I do. I used to. I used to. I used to. I used to teach lists, and, and concentration, and stuff like that early on. And, and I teach these these retreats with long, long lists every day. I have a new list with ten factors or eight factors. And I think it was Jim Howe that came to me. He said, "Bunty, your talks are great, but enough." <laughs> <laughs> Enough with lists already. <laughs> I said, oh. So then I, I realized, okay, too, too much blathering. Now I've forgotten the lists. Ajahn, is the process of change an object? Yeah, it's an object in awareness, isn't it? It's a process. It's not a fixed object, it's changing. So and if you just, like, if you just stare, whether it's staring at a picture in my room, and you know, you think uh, a picture is a fixed thing; it doesn't change. But you just the staring. My perceptions were constantly changing. I saw a shadow. I saw how it was made. So the mind's evaluating. It's always changing. But the knowing—that's uh, that's the interesting thing. Uh, so then the question is: Is there something unchanging? Right? Well, it can't be a thing, because that would be an object. So you're left with just this knowing, or, or consciousness, or presence, or being, or... And then the idea of this is to abide as that. So like Ajahn Samiri used to say, what do Buddhas know that others don't know? That which has a nature to rise, has a nature to cease, is not self. That's Buddha knowing. Which isn't this chap back here, or his little mate. <laughs> But rather, it's awareness knowing change. And again, as I suggested yesterday, if you can engage in that kind of inquiry, you should notice the stillness. It's like, it is an inquiry, right? You're forcing yourself. But always to do that, you have to, you have to be quiet. You have to allow the mind to have some settledness and so on. How are we doing for time? Oh, it's... 9.30? No, 8.30. Uh, in Theravada Buddhism, we have the stream-enter path. Is this the path we should practice and work towards? The three factors. If we practice awareness and meditate, are we working on the self-view factor? Will it, will it be 
doubt if one thinks that we will never attain the stream enter. Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff there to unpack this one, so I'll do that tomorrow. Yeah, that, that would... Uh, it's an important question, but I'll... I'll unpack that tomorrow. Please explain what you mean by in awareness. Well, it's an attempt by me to use language to emphasize, to try to, to, try to get us out of the, this perspective that I am, my knees are hurting, that I am in this body with uh, sore knees. Now, certainly that is conventionally true. My knees are not your knees, in that sense. So there is individuality. But the curious thing is that the feeling of the knees is also, for me, in awareness. Now, when I use that language, then that perspective of me being in the body, looking out of my brain cells at you, changes to a more interesting kind of possibility, uh, which is very expansive and boundless. So if I say, uh, the perception of you out there is in awareness, then awareness starts to take a different dimension. And it's very intuitive. That's why I use that. I don't know if it works. So I'm not trying to find something. I'm trying to get... I'm trying to replicate what I'm experiencing, is that awareness doesn't have a center, doesn't have boundaries, and if I am referencing that, it's very, very peaceful. Whereas if I'm referencing me and you, and my reactions to you, then I said, I'm here, you're there, which is, again, conventionally true, and I'm kind of in a reactive mode, which is fine. So that sense of boundlessness, spaciousness, is something that is, is talked about in the texts. So we talk about the element of space and the element of consciousness, and that these are boundless. And so it's kind of trying to, trying to figure out language which might help in that intuitive perception. It's difficult to, to formulate, let alone maybe, maybe experience or notice. So it's my attempt to do that. So it's, these, these words I use are just sort of they're the more tricky ones, right? But it's the kind of word, just try it and see what happens, word. Just see what happens if you say, well, this experience is in awareness rather than I am in the body. Both are, let's say both are true. You're not trying to abnegate your responsibility for the body, right? But, but just to try that, this is in awareness. And I combine that with the other one, well, what doesn't change? Those are the two I use a lot. It doesn't change. So that takes a kind of quietness and noticing. This is in awareness. If I try to figure it out, then 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 I'm in thought. And and what is important for me is to go beyond thought. How can I take how can I take an idea in awareness to go to silence? That's kind of important for me. So it's a kind of try it and see. And if it doesn't work, don't worry about it. It's a sort of idea. Um, you got a few minutes? I can see that the more we practice renunciation, the more temptations 
present opportunities themselves. Huh? I can see that the more we practice renunciation, the more temptations slash present opportunities themselves up. Hmm? Um, I don't get it. Duh. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll work on that tonight. <laughs> Read that again. The idea of seeing myself and others in terms of personality types, such as introvert or extrovert, has been very helpful to me in understanding myself and others. Thus, thinking in types seems very different from the ideas of non-self and impermanence. Please comment. Well, you can do both, right? So, I see a type of plumber who is incompetent. And I never hire him again. Right? So that's a type of plumber. Uh, and that's the conventional realm I live in, and I need those ideas. So if those kinds of ideas about personality are helpful, great. Use them for understanding personality. But what's interesting to me is that personality arises and ceases. And that, to me, is neat. In fact, it's spooky. Like, I sometimes, where does this personality come from? So I'm not so much interested in extrovert or introvert. I'm interested what in the space within which personality arises and ceases. Which doesn't mean that, that, that I don't apply that kind of analysis to the people I know. So I, obviously I have some analysis of my brothers and say, oh yeah, he's... Yeah, he's not very gregarious, he's solitary, and so on. So, so I certainly use that. And that's on a social realm, we need to use that. But here, I'm not talking about the social. I'm talking about the transcendent. I'm trying to always go to that. So, you know, there are other people who can talk about the social in much... Like, like say, if, if someone has PTSD, I would send them to a, a, a good psychiatrist or a good... Uh, psychologist, because I don't understand how to deal with that. I have no idea. Not really. Yeah, I don't have the training. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, the transcendent realization. And so uh, that's a kind of niche market, I think. Because <laughs> there is lots of talk about psychological states and, 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 and that. But I wonder how many people really... Are, are well that's what I'm interested in with psychology I'm, I'm interested just enough not to be neurotic <laughs> so but that's what so that's, that's why I talk about it um, so it's not either or it's not either or there I, I would say it's time and place in effect where it's effective one more What is the relationship between awareness and compassion? Is compassion a vehicle for awareness, or is awareness imbued with compassion? I think at the highest, on the highest realization, they're probably one, and that that they that in the beginning they seem separate, but when there is the 
abandonment of dualities and, and you know, self-ideas, then uh, when I look at you, I look at me, kind of thing. And you could see how that would be the, the deepest compassion. I don't see a difference. But uh, on the way, on the way, what the compassionate heart does, it, 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 and, and again, compassion can be caught in a dualist, can be taught in a dualistic way. May I be well, may you be well. Or compassion can be caught, taught in a non-dualistic way where it's about acceptance of all things and stream of consciousness. Yeah? So both, both are important. You know, may I be well, may you be well. And that kind of exercises the heart towards that. And then when you step back into the teachings of anatta, not self, that this is stream of consciousness, then it all belongs. And that's not dualistic. So then the sense of me and you falls away and there is just uh, perception, memory, feeling, sight, sound, stream of consciousness. <coughs> Who was stream of, was Burroughs was the stream of consciousness writer? Anyway, see the difference? Duality is me and you, and then non-duality is there is this experience, and there's the knowing of this experience. There's the knowing of, of perception, it arises and ceases, and you recede into the compassionate knowing of the way things are. And this is that's when you, you know, this is when we talk about enlightenment, that's what we're talking about. Both are important, they're not mutually exclusive. Whew. Okay, I think that's, that's sufficient for today. You want to do the... Andamayang tamatataya sarukarang ramase Sadhu Sadhu